Tonight we're going to be reflecting on the paradox of desire and how each of us relates to the various kinds of desire that arise in our lives. Desire is one of those key components of understanding the Four Noble Truths. The Four Noble Truths were the first of the Buddhist teachings, and they are considered by all of the various uh, schools, the various yamas of Buddhism, to contain all the other teachings, or said another way, all the other teachings are an explication of the Four Noble Truths. The first of the Four Noble Truths is that there is dukkha, that there is suffering. Dukkha is a much larger word than just suffering. It's unease, it's uh, unsatisfactory, dissatisfaction, catch-22 of life, for those of you who are old enough to know what that phrase means. So the kind of tension, the angst, the stress of life that there is in our lived experience, part of our lived experience, inextricable from it in a regular mind state, the existence of dukkha. And the second noble truth is that there is a cause of dukkha, and this cause can be known, and the cause is our clinging to wanting this and not wanting that, and our cause, our, our clinging to various kinds of sensual desire, and that this can be known, and that we can have an actual realization of this and seeing how this is causing a kind of suffering in our lives. And then the third noble truth is that there is a cessation, an end to all suffering, that there is an end to this whole way of uh, reacting to life, that it would completely end, that the very roots, the very seeds from which this kind of stress, this kind of unease with life arises would be extinguished, would be pulled out, would be done away with. A rather large promise, that. And both the great appeal, in many ways, of Buddha Dharma, and also the kind of intimidating uh, truth of the, third, uh, of the Four Noble Truths. And then the Fourth Noble Truth is that there is a path, that there is an end to our suffering that can be known that there is a path, there is a way to walk, there's a way to practice, there's a way to move through our lives, starting from just where we are with whatever imperfections we have, and move through our lives just as it is in such a way that we are in a gradual way moving to more and more freedom. So all the freedom wouldn't come at the end, but would rather be coming along the way, not in a perfect little step-by-step way, but more in a meandering way as we sometimes do better than we do in other times. Sometimes we're more skillful and sometimes less skillful. And all of the karma of our lives, all the conditioning, all the preconditioning of our lives has to play out as we go. But we gradually, through walking this path, learn to meet each, each moment of our life in a way that is less and less reactive to it. Less reactive to the negative, which everybody goes, oh, I'm for that. But also less reactive to the positive. 
because there's equal suffering in that which is positive in our life if we're reactive to it. The reactivity takes the form of clinging, of grasping, holding on. So if it's pleasant, no, I want more of this, i got to hold on to this, I don't want this to be taken away from me. That's suffering. And it can happen in a moment where you're, you're, in, and you're in a meeting at work and you get a little moment of recognition. And boy, that feels good. It's about time. <laughs> that moment of about time was clinging. And in that moment of about time, you cease to feel the, the actual wholesomeness of being recognized and you were wanting something. And on and on, then you try to set up other moments, and it just it, it's this word papancha mind, which we're going to be talking about tonight. Your mind in that moment, you got a little recognition, and it started papanchizing. It's there's a it, there's these associations and memories and connections, and bang, off you're you're off somewhere. Rather than going, wow, this really feels good, being able to stay with it, and the same with the touch from your significant other. A, a time of a, of a kind of uh, caring from a friend when you really feel the love of the friend and how difficult it is to just stay with that or a moment in nature. So I spend quite a bit of uh, emphasis on the, the, the way the pleasant can cause suffering because so often we overlook that. Because we go, well, I like this. I want more of this in my life. What's wrong with that? And then as we'll see as we go through this evening... That desire itself has in it all of the the beginnings that lead to the clinging, that lead to the suffering. One way to understand the Four Noble Truths is that they lead to an understanding. And from this understanding, there develops an intention. And from that intention there's an actualization in your life. So an understanding. Without an understanding, where do you begin? And then that, that, that understanding, as it takes some form and you hear the teachings, you have a more concrete, a more specific intention. So how you mean to meet this moment. And then from that intention, you actually, in, in your, your, your speech and your, your actions, your livelihood, your thoughts, you actually meet this moment. You actually meet this moment. My understanding of the of right intention, sama samkapa, wise intention, which is the second of the eightfold path, it's the second fold, if you like that word, of the eightfold path, is that it is always referring to this moment. Always to this moment. We have goals of being a better person, or goals of being a better meditator, of goals to be liberated. Those are wonderful goals. And they're, they're a big part of life, both uh, the, your spiritual, your goals, your inner development goals in general, and your worldly goals. They're a big part of your life. They create the excitement. They tell you what to do with your time. They, uh, they tell you how to allocate your resources. And there's all this, well, how am I doing? Am I getting there? I'm not getting there. Well, that was good. I'm getting a little closer. Oh, no. The, oh, this, it's this whole thing, it keeps the spinning going. That's fine. But intention is this moment, just now. So when we are practicing 
the Eightfold Path, we're practicing it in this moment. When we're sitting, it's this moment in the sitting, just now. You're not trying to be with the breath the whole sit. You're trying to be with the breath in this moment. The more you're able to be focused on this moment, be with the breath in this moment, the more likely you're going to be stable and, and collected and unified in such a way that you stay with the breath for ever longer periods of time. This is, a, uh, to me, a very fundamental understanding of Dharma that oftentimes gets a little overlooked or a little shifted around. We cannot hold all time in our minds. We just can't do that. It's just the same way we can't know all the world's suffering. There's not anybody who's suffering all the world's suffering. There's individual suffering, the world's suffering. Not, there's nobody having all the world's suffering. And in the same way, there's no you that experiences all the moments of your life. That you, there's a stream of knowing that you call yourself by a name, but that stream is always changing, always moving, and that intention is moving with it this moment and now and now, this moment, it's like this, and your heart is available right now, right this moment, to hearing the Dharma, to caring for your friends, for standing up for what's true, for what you really care about, it's just now, so empowering for so many people to begin to get some feel of that for themselves. So from this, uh, the practice of the Four Noble Truths, which in Dancing with Life I explain what I, what I learned from my teacher Ajahn Sumedho in terms of there being 12 insights or 12 realizations as making the Four Noble Truths a practice. But as we start to practice in this way, we experience a kind of renewal to our our, our uh, great desire to to be authentically ourselves our, our, uh, to be authentic in relation to our own Buddha nature to have this rawness this unguardedness this availability to life that Buddha nature has it doesn't discriminate it doesn't it doesn't it doesn't uh, judge life it meets life this this innate uh, sense of well-being of loving kindness all the brahma viharas of compassion it meets every moment with compassion it meets every moment with loving kindness it meets every moment with sympathetic joy every moment with equanimity and how much of that is there is what's appropriate so it's it's not picking and choosing and we learn oh yes I can do a little more of that at least in certain situations or certain aspects of my life or with certain people, I can just be more present. One of the reasons that I'm starting to use some of the kind of instruction I gave you in the guided meditation, in terms of this unguardedness, this rawness, is that we can easily start to conceptualize both the way we practice and conceptualize our lives. This moment, this intention of this moment is immediate. It's not conceptualized. It's informed by what we know, but it's not conceptualized. Uh, it's direct experience, the felt experience. This moment is like this, my teacher says, the Venerable Sumato. This moment is like this. We learn that on the cushion. But what usually, I don't want to make it usually, what often happens is that we can start to treat our time on the cushion 
is semi like what we're doing. Everything else, it's another doing, and we're we're sort of sort of there and sort of not there. We're not fully there to this moment on the cushion because it's just one more thing we're doing. We sort of uh, uh, let the, our worldly identity to permeate our sitting time as opposed to our sitting time start to more inform our worldly time. So uh, from that, I've, I've started in these recent uh, times to ask people to be more naked, to be more raw to the moment. And I would, at the end of the evening, I would welcome hearing from some of you as to how that was for you as a practice. One person uh, has, has already given me a little report here in terms of like, wow, it was a little, uh, it was it was different for her and a little a little powerful. So I'd like to hear from more of you about that. This word papancha mind, papancha is that capacity of mind to proliferate. You have an experience, so um, someone uh, seems to disrespect you in a moment. They seem to put you down. Your mind immediately goes to every other time you've been put down. It goes to, oh, well, this person all along, I don't really like this person. This person's not da-da-da-da-da-da. Then you, it's back to your childhood and all the other times and how, how you don't want to do that and what's wrong with you and da-da-da-da-da. All these uh, 101, 108 a thousand associations. So that's one aspect of papancha mind. It's natural. It's not that we're inadequate or we're bad people. It's not that kind of a teaching. The mind does this proliferation because that's its nature when it's not been trained. It hasn't developed. There's an evolutionary, if I can use that word, uh, capacity to the way the mind the mind evolves through our time and our working with it. That's why practice again is so important, is that we evolve. But we start out with our mind does this kind of proliferation of association. The second uh, aspect of this papancha mind, and one that's not uh, always mentioned, but uh, Stephen Batchelor, the the Buddhist scholar, d- does great teachings around this. Papancha mind also uh, is coming from a contraction of mind. So it's, it, it starts to proliferate like that because it gets overly excited and contracts in and then explodes out out of its anxiety. So there is in these moments like that a kind of clinging that's there in that moment of papanchizing, the mind has gone into this contraction, into this clinging, into this grasping, and that, that uh, energetic force like that goes out in all these directions. And just think about your own life, how many times you know, you've done that. For many of you, probably there was more than one time today. could have been in trafficking. It could have been when you were trying to work out something with someone else. Or some email you got, you know. And of course, the uh, uh, <laughs> a not always amusing example of that is these uh, what do they call them? Those flaming emails when they when they flame you. Is that the word that they use? <laughs> I'm not very up with all this, but some word like that where someone gets so upset and they write you this terrible email, which then they are so sorry about that they've they've written because it's there on record forever. <laughs> flaming is that what they're called? Okay. <laughs> so as we 
as we uh, start to understand the nature of the mind in relation to desire, we start to have the possibility of recognizing papancha mind when it starts and not getting so swept away with it or not staying in it so long or having such intensity with it or have it happen so frequently. And it evolves to a point that in many aspects of our lives, when it starts, we just recognize it right away and we're not interested. Seen that movie, played that role enough times, don't want to do that again. Yes, I've got this difficult brother or sister. Yes, here we are on the phone again and here they are once again accusing me. Not interested in that. This is my brother. This is my sister. I'm going to be as kind as I can be in this situation. And if I can't be kind... I, I will I will get off the phone as soon as I can. I'm not going down this whole path. And afterwards, when I'm not with that person, it's over. It was a it was a one off. It was not this uh, this continuing series where it runs your day. This is this is very possible for all of us, but it takes practice. It takes work. We have to uh, know that we are participating in the creation of our own suffering and know that there is a way to cease doing that and have a practice that allows. Thus, the Four Noble Truths. And I call it dancing with life because as we gain the wisdom of the Dharma, we become more and more skilled dancing with life. This, uh, the Dharma is very uh, uh, practical. It's, it's, it's not theoretical. It's not even ontological in its nature. The Buddha doesn't say where we came from and where we're going. When uh, the, these uh, various people would come, there's sutta after sutta, an example of this, where people would come and say, well, what happens when you die? Where were we before we died? We were born. And he would always just go silent. He wouldn't get involved in this kind of um, um, uh, ontological explanation of things. It was here, now, immediate. Very powerful in that way. And pretty uh, unusual in terms of... uh, In some ways, that's why it's hard to say is Buddhism a religion because it it doesn't have that aspect. And that ontological aspect is one of the things that's usually associated with a, a religion. So then we come to this um, question about our own relationship with desire. It is said that all desire leads to suffering. And in one sense, that's true. Thus it could be said, no desire, no suffering. If you didn't care about how things were one way or the other, then you wouldn't suffer. You also wouldn't be very alive. And I don't really think that's what most people are looking for is that kind of uh, uh, deadness in their lives. On the other hand, there is a subtle truth to this that I'm going to uh, come back to after we've looked at the more surface level of desire. So on the mundane level, we naturally have desires. We want to be healthy. 
We want our children to be safe and to be healthy and to grow well and to learn. We want those that we care about to be well. We want all human beings to be well. We want to learn. We want to love. We want to give love. These are all desires. We want to be liberated. That's a desire. The Buddha made a joke in one of his talks about that uh, attachment to liberation was the one fortunate attachment. So there's, there's, uh, we have, we are in a realm where desire is part of the experience. Again, my teacher Ajahn Sumedho says that desire is a natural energy of this realm. And that is certainly my experience of it. That it's a natural energy. And think of your own life. What would it be like? How, how would you ever uh, move in any way if there was not desire? The whole system is built on that. But the problem is that desire so easily moves into clinging. The mind gets so identified with that desire. It idealizes desire and it imagines that it is a something that if it has that desire, then it will be so much happier that it takes birth in the desire. That's the clinging. That's the grasping. And once we've taken birth in it, suffering is sure to follow. We'll look at that more closely in a moment. So one way to uh, deconstruct desire, and the Buddha was a great deconstructionist. He was the first deconstructionist, not these recent uh, fellows. <laughs> he was also a great phenomenologist, where he takes the phenomenology of life and deconstructs it. And that's why it's so accessible to us today. And in many ways, his psychology, our Western psychology, is just now cap- catching up with many of the uh, parts of psychology that he had. So there's desire that's wholesome, and there's desire that's unwholesome. Wholesome desires are those desires that do not, uh, in, in being achieved, result in suffering. They bring a, a, a lightness to life, a well-being to life, in, in being achieved. Now, just thinking about this for a moment, I would like you to think of, for yourself in this moment, to name to yourself three desires that, that are strong in your life at this time, not right this very moment necessarily, but at this time period of your life. Three desires that you would consider wholesome. That you're going to say to yourself, so uh, to, wait a moment. I'll tell you mine, because <laughs> I did it too just then. So one was uh, a desire for health, a desire for deeper understanding and realization, and a desire to serve. Those were the three that came up for me at that moment. Now, in the same way, there are unwholesome desires. Unwholesome desires are desires that bring suffering. Uh, and they, so they bring surf, suffering either in their uh, their 
the much there manifest. So uh, uh, I, I, I want to I want to get revenge against all those whomever, and in getting that revenge, we create the suffering. So the very the result that we are desiring is a is a, a, a result that's suffering. You know, I want to put that person down. You know. In terms of a moment when someone's offended you, or I'm going to straighten them out, and you you say something really cruel to them, or uh, you uh, you take something that's not yours, and in taking something that's not yours, someone feels a great loss. So it's 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 uh, there's a suffering in the result. There can also it also can be that. The the uh, the only way to get to this particular well I'll, I'll, come, I'll hold on to that for a moment never mind so now I would like you to think of a, a name to yourself two unwholesome desires that that you right now in a general period you're having to work with right now be honest with yourself you don't have to say them out loud. Okay, everyone got those two. Now, as you named the three wholesome and the two unwholesome, was it hard for you to know the difference? And maybe one of those, maybe not. We'll see there's another wrinkle, there's another layer of complication here. But if we pay attention, if we bring our mindfulness to it, we can know when a desire is wholesome or unwholesome. It may be that we've never actually done that kind of definition that I was doing with you, and you're welcome to do your own definition. But having some clarity in your mind about what is a wholesome desire and what's an unwholesome desire. And then the second layer is that there is skillful means and unskillful means. So you can have a wholesome desire... But the only way you can get to it is through unskillful means. Or in your impatience, or in your being swept away with desire, you get there by unskillful means. We can do this in uh, all sorts of ways. We can, uh, we can be discussing with uh, our significant other whose turn it is to wash the dishes or take out the garbage and that we use unskillful communication and create so much suffering. We can be dealing with ourselves and trying to motivate ourselves towards a wholesome end, and our language with ourselves can be so unskillful the way we treat ourselves that we actually are, are, are being violent to ourselves and, and creating much suffering in many, uh, many different kinds and ways of that. That's a whole talk in itself. So we learn in time to choose fewer and fewer unwholesome desires, to go with fewer and fewer unwholesome desires. Still further along, we learn even with wholesome desires to choose only skillful means. We do this through practicing the Eightfold Path of the Fourth Noble Truth. 
in the Satipatthana Sutta, the, the, the Four Foundations of Mindfulness, which is a, a, a part of, of, of following the, this whole path, mindfulness, sati, is this knowing the difference between wholesome and unwholesome. Is, is being aware of what's true right now. Okay, is this wholesome? Is this unwholesome? Is, so that you're, you're present. You're aware for your moment. This is the sati aspect. The sampajana, this, this, a second quality that's there in the, the mindfulness practice is this clear comprehension. Oh yes, I, so I'm aware of lust in this moment. This lust is a lust for nature. Well, that's wholesome. Oh, but the way I'm doing this is unwholesome. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm riding my bike on a walking path through the Mount Tam in such a way that if I come around the curve at this speed and there's someone walking on this path, I could hit them. That's unwholesome expression of a wholesome desire. We won't get into what's, who, who has the right to which paths. <laughs> Don't want to get into any politics here. So we, we learn to distinguish this sampajana, this clear comprehension. We know that even though we want this, it's not worth it. Or we know even though we want it and it would be a good thing, that there's only certain ways that's going about it. And it's better not to have it than to have it in a way that's, that's wrong. That is the, the, the balancing of desire is in this renunciation. So when we choose to only do that which is skillful, that's a form of renunciation. One thinks of renunciation in these dramatic terms of being brahmachara, being celebrate, or being like a, a monk or nun in the Theravadan tradition, you don't eat after the noon meal, or all of these kind of uh, physical austerities like that. But austerity, this, this asceticism, is there in our daily lives in relation to desire. It's how we balance desire. It's how we, uh, we learn not to be uh, uh, enslaved by desire because we learn that we can practice asceticism. We can just not go after what we want in a given moment. That's power. When, you, when you're not pulled by the strings of your desire in such a way that you have no choice, that's power. That's empowerment. So often people think that the desire has to go away. The desire does not have to go away. You can learn to live with the desire and not let it control the moment. Not even spoil your day. You can, you can uh, be very lonely physically. You can want to be with someone in an evening and choose not to do so because it would not be wholesome to do so or there's not a skillful means or whatever and then your evening not be ruined by this desire. As we're learning how to do this, our loneliness ruins the evening. We suffer with our loneliness. But the more we learn to practice in this way, the loneliness is is part of the characteristics of that evening, but it's not enslaving us. It's not making us miserable. You uh, can't come to accept that by hearing me say it. You have to practice with it enough to know for yourself. There's tremendous power in the asceticism of daily life. It is our equivalent as lay people of what a, a nun or a monk is going through. And it's just as worthy of dignity, but it's worthy of your investing your energy in it. And when you first invest your energy, it doesn't feel so good. 
because you know you could do these unskillful things and get what you want. And like, well, here I am miserable, and it wouldn't be that bad, those unskillful things. But those little times of, of renouncing add up to this huge strength. And then in time, uh, our nervous system having this new relationship to what we want and don't want. We're no longer like the puppet on the end of the string of what we desire. In other words, what's pleasant, oh, oh I want this. If it's unpleasant, oh, I don't want that. We're like a puppet on a string at that point. But we grow beyond that through practice. Where it's just pleasant, it's just unpleasant. So empowering. The, I, I, I teach a Sunday sitting group, which you're all invited to drop in on in Corte Madera. And there's some people here tonight from the Sunday Sangha. And last night, uh, we meet in Corte Madera, and there's flyers around. You can go to the web or something. But there's, um, uh, we were, last night, I was talking about this that uh, asceticism in its, in its word, in its etymology, just means practice. It just means practice from uh, the way it was originally used by the Greeks. So it's uh, so when we when we when we practice mindfully, when we practice with loving kindness, that is a kind of asceticism. We're meeting a moment with kindness rather than with hatred towards ourselves or towards another. Now, the, the, our irritation with ourselves may be saying for us to feel hatred towards ourselves or disgust or or impatience and to you know be trashing ourselves verbally inside. The asceticism of it is to not do that, to say no to that. And then in time, we learn to meet that with loving kindness. It doesn't mean that we give up our discrimination. We discern when we're being skillful and when we're not, when we're being effective and not. In our daily lives, we can go, whoa, I'm not being effective now. But rather than lambasting ourselves over that, we go, oh, Okay, so I'm not centered. I'm not grounded. Oh, and we learn to collect and unify in daily life, just as we teach on the concentration retreat for you to collect and unify the mind on your cushion. So this is this is this power of of uh, moving to a new relationship with desire. We don't we don't have to be perfect in this. It is called a gradual path for a reason. It is gradual. The rewards are not all at the end. They are as we move through it. Each time that we gain a little more freedom, a little less uh, being caught in our reactive mind, both in that moment it's a reward, and also we're creating this uh, karmic seed that will blossom in a future moment again. And as we get more and more of those, it starts to blossom more and more. I've witnessed many people have a dramatic shift in the ease of their life, the way they dance with life. They're allowing the Dharma to inform how they meet life, and it gives them this wisdom and this, this new conditioning of the nervous system, and their life becomes much more of a dance very practical, and yet uh, spiritual at the same time. A poem for you here. This is uh, Rumi. It's called Love or Emptiness. I start out on this road. Call it love or emptiness. I only know what's not here. Resentment, seeds, 
back-scratching greed, worrying about outcome, fear of people. When a bird gets free, it doesn't go back for remnants left on the bottom of the cage. Close by I'm rain, far off a cloud of fire. I seem restless, but I'm only deeply at ease. Branches tremble, the roots are still. I am a universe in a handful of dirt, whole when totally demolished. Talk about choices does not apply to me, while intelligence considers options. I am somewhere lost in the wind. Another poem. This is by Milos, called This Only. A valley, and above it, forest in autumn colors. A voyager arrives. A map led him here, or perhaps memory. Once, long ago, in the sun, when the first snow fell, riding this way, he felt joy, strong without reason, joy of the eyes. Everything was the rhythm of shifting trees, of a bird in flight, of a train on the viaduct, a feast of motion. He returns years later, has no demands. He wants only one most precious thing, to see purely and simply, without name, without expectations, fears, or hopes, at the edge where there is no I or not I. Where there is no I or not I. So on this... um, Subtle level of desire, we're right on that edge of I and not I, of being in doing and being in being, of love and emptiness, of action and stillness. Right there on that edge. That's the dance on the subtle level around desire. All desire is movement. It's a movement towards something you care about or a movement away from something you would rather not have. So all desire involves this movement. All desire, therefore, has in it a friction because we know from science that all, uh, that all movement has friction. Your cells are made up of these atoms. And all this movement, there's a bit of friction, there's an attraction, there's a tension there. So in the manifest realm, by definition, there is a kind of suffering, a kind of uh, tension. In the more still moments, and not everyone gets the privilege of experiencing this, I don't get the chance to sit long enough. But in the most still moments of meditation, the mind becomes so still, so pure, that any thought is experienced as dukkha. There is a stress, there is a tension. The friction of any thought is disturbing to that stillness. The stillness is so deeply satisfying that anything that arises can be known as the stillness. So we live in a realm 
of this subtle movement that is desire. And you go, well, why do I want that? You want that because that's where your love of your children is. That's where your love of nature is. That's where your love of, of your friends, your significant other. All of your, the, you choose to be manifest because this, this, the, your Buddha nature, which in itself is non-moving, it's unborn, uncreated, unmanifest, can only be known, can only manifest in this moment through movement. So we have this strange uh, uh, paradox that we have to uh, we have to make our peace with because there is no life without movement. There is no life without movement. You can count on that because <laughs> science has shown this over and over again. And yet here we are with with this with this paradox to be dealt with. T. S. Eliot. Uh, puts it quite beautifully in um, uh, his his language with this. Sorry, find my place. Desire itself is movement. Desire itself is movement. Not in itself desirable. Desire itself is movement, not in itself desirable. Love is itself unmoving. Only the cause and end of movement. Desire itself is movement, not in itself desirable. Love is itself unmoving. Only the cause and end of movement. As we purify our relationship with desire, as we more and more align with wholesome desire for ourselves, and these can be lay desires, these can be, you know, you want someone, you know, to cuddle with at night. It doesn't, we're not, again, you're living a lay life. The Buddha taught and had many people that were lay people become enlightened. But as, as we become more wholesome in our choice of desire and become more skillful through our mindfulness, through uh, all of our practice, and choosing skillful means for wholesome desires, then where we come to is more and more that we are grounded in this feeling of love. We're grounded in our Buddha nature. We're grounded in what are taught as the Brahma Viharas of loving kindness, of sympathetic joy that is happiness for others, of compassion for uh, what the Buddha called the heart's quiver when people are hurting, and equanimity, understanding that this realm is like this and not then being burdened by it, even while we're being compassionate. So we don't add to the suffering when we meet suffering. This is this, is this love that Eliot is referring to. Desire itself is movement, not in itself desirable. Love is itself unmoving, only the cause and end of movement. So there is this a possibility for all of us to develop this new relationship with desire. Where, again, it's not an all at once or there's got to be a perfection of it, but this gradual movement 
so that we are more and more defined and characterized in this way. And a little bit makes such a difference in our lives, in our families, at work. It makes a big difference. It makes a big difference when you're driving down the highway and your state of mind is resting in this kind of a love feeling. You're not all starry-eyed, you know. It's not that kind of a feeling. It's this benignness. It's this gentleness that you're meeting your own mind moments with. You're meeting what's coming in from the external. It's, there's, a, there's an ease, there's a well-being to this. In this way of looking at desire, desire is a natural energy, and what we're doing is moving from a reactive state to this energy to a responsive state to this energy, from being the puppet on the string to having choice, to having this way where we can meet desire as both love and emptiness, as Rumi said. We, we, we hold both of the, these. This is paradoxical thinking. We hold it together. Oh, this is empty. There's no me nor uh, I. There's no I or not I here. But there is this feeling. There is this benignness. There's this well-being. There's this bodhicitta. This, uh, this, uh, this feeling of caring that is there. Again, uh, T.S. Eliot um, uh, says this so beautifully. Where he says, teach us to care and not to care. Teach us to care and not to care. Teach us to sit still. Teach us to care and not to care. Teach us to sit still. Maybe hard for some of you to open to the possibility that stillness is inherently in you right now. You are that stillness. The, the Buddhist understanding of that stillness is we rediscover it in ourselves. There's a little dust in our eyes and we remove that dust. In that stillness is this uh, capacity to respond appropriately to desire. We care and we don't care. We care and that's what makes us move. But we don't care so much that we cling. So you want the best for your child. Why wouldn't you? I want the best for your child. But you don't cling. What does clinging look like? Clinging is when other kids get trashed by a parent so that their child can have something. Right? How many times do we sing, have we seen that? Uh, we, where, and where, where a, a, a parent takes for a child more than it's appropriate for that child. In terms of what, in terms of the group, in terms of another individual, I, I talk about in the book that terrible example of uh, the uh, the French father who actually uh, his his children played tennis and he was he was uh, doping the water bottles of the kids' opponents so his kids they get a little fuzzy so his kids can win and you go oh, well that's crazy and yet we just had that case in St Louis of the mother who. Uh, you know, created a fictitious person on the internet and trashed this kid that was because her her daughter had gotten mad at this kid. Or we had the case in Texas of this mother was hiring a hitman to uh, 
kill her daughter's rival for cheerleading, trying out for cheerleading. I mean, that's extreme, but I, I, I just make it simple that way. But that's, that's clinging. That's clinging to an outcome. So to teach us to care and not to care. How do you learn to do that? By finding that stillness. The stillness will know. Your Buddha nature knows. You know through mindfulness. You know through having developed compassion, through loving kindness, through having developed this austerity, this asceticism in your daily life by walking the Eightfold Path. All of this uh, this, uh, complexity, uh, all of this subtlety made simple by the Eightfold Path. When we have insight arise, the chaos of our lives is made simple. It's made simple. It doesn't mean that the chaos it goes away, but our through line is available. The Dharma is our through line to having a simplicity of, of being at ease with our lives. So I'll just end with um, one more piece of describing this from uh, T.S. Eliot. And everything I've read from T.S. Eliot tonight, I explain all this great length in the book, but it's from the four quartets. And, um, and not the Teach Us to Sit Still, that was from something, that was from Ash Wednesday, but these other two. You can receive this. You can receive this. On whatever sphere of being the mind of a man may be intent, the mind of a woman may be intent at the time of death. That is the one action. And the time of death is every moment which shall fructify in the lives of others. And do not think of the fruit of action. You can receive this in whatever sphere of being the mind of a man may be intent at the time of death. That is the one action which shall fructify in the lives of others. And do not think of the fruit of action. And the time of death is every moment. Every moment is a moment of arising and passing. That's why right intention means this moment. This moment. That's the one moment that you can make a difference in someone's life, in your life, in your friend's life, a stranger on the street, someone at work. This moment, this is a radical reinterpretation for us. The Buddha was being so radical at his time, and it's still radical to this day. Sama Samkhapa, right intention. How to meet desire? Meet it with right intention in this moment. How do you meet it with right intention? You're not attached to outcome. You're not attached to outcome. When you're attached to outcome, that is unwholesome. It's an unwholesome desire to be attached to outcome. But to care, wise caring, is wholesome. It's coming from the Brahma Viharas. It's coming from your heart. Wise caring. When we have wise caring, we don't choose unskillful means. But if we're attached to outcome, then... The end justifies the means. Abu grade. You know? Guantanamo Bay. These were these were these were uh, people thinking that the end justified the means. Waterboarding. An end justifying the means. Unskillful. Unskillful in terms of the immediate of causing suffering. 
unskillful as we know, even in terms of trying to get information out of people. But when the mind gets attached to an outcome, it can't think clearly. That's not sampajana. The part of the thinking clearly has this uh, intent of loving kindness, of caring and not caring, of this moment in this moment. It's easy to see the shortcomings of others, not so easy to see our own shortcomings. I would encourage you this week to explore your own experience with desire. Just watch it. See how it goes. See what you do. What is your dance with life around desire? Teach me to care and not to care. Teach me to sit still. Is this wholesome or unwholesome, this desire in this moment? Is, this, is, is, this, is the means skillful or unskillful? To include the way you're talking with yourself inside. I really would have every person walk out of here tonight with this commitment to be more kind to yourself in your inner speech. And from that, that kindness of your inner speech to be relating to desire in that way. So, what shall fructify in our lives moment to moment? Let's sit together for a moment. We have a tradition in the Sunday Sangha, Marin Sunday Sangha, of closing with a call and response of loving kindness. And I'd like to share that with you tonight, if you'll all cooperate, and I'm just asking you to do so. So I will say, there'll be four phrases, I will say each phrase, and then you repeat it out loud. And when you repeat it out loud, you're sending metta to everyone in this room. There will be an ensuing silence in which you're receiving the metta from everyone in this room. It's a very palpable feeling. And then I'll say the next phrase. You'll say it out loud. And then there will be another silence. May you be safe from internal and external harm. May you be safe from internal and external
May you have a calm, clear mind and a peaceful, loving heart. Calm, clear mind and a peaceful, loving heart. May you be physically strong, healthy, and vital. May you experience love, joy, wonder, and wisdom in this life just as it is. May you experience love, joy, wonder, and wisdom in this life just as it is. As we learn to be more skillful in our relationship with desire and to live with the paradox of desire, may it be a benefit to our loved ones and to all of those with whom we come in contact. Any merit that may have arisen from our practice together this evening, we offer this merit to the benefit of all others. May all beings everywhere be free from suffering. very attentive group this evening and I felt your hearts here with me and I very much appreciate that. Just a reminder